0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: A white Pomeranian named Fluffy flew out of a fifth-floor window in Bunna, which was a brand-new building with the painter's scaffolding still around it. Fluffy screamed in her little lapdog voice all the way down, like a little white kettle losing steam, bounced off the bonnet of a cielo, and skidded to a halt near the rank of schoolgirls waiting for the St. Mary's convent bus. There was remarkably little blood, but the sight of Fluffy's brains did send the convent tears into hysterics, And meanwhile, above, the man who had swung Fluffy around his head by one leg, who had slung Fluffy into the void, one Mr. Mahesh Pandey of Mirage Textiles, that man was leaning on his windowsill and laughing. Mrs. Kamla Pandey, who in talking to Fluffy always spoke of herself as mummy, now staggered and ran to her kitchen and plucked from the magnetic holder a knife nine inches long and two wide. When Sartaj and Katekar broke open the door to apartment 502. Mrs. Pandey was standing in front of the bedroom door, looking intensely at a dense circle of two-inch-long wounds in the wood, about chest high. As Sartaj watched, she sighed, raised her hand, and stabbed the door again. She had to struggle with both hands on the handle to get the knife out.
0: Vikram Chandra is the author of the novel Red Earth and Pouring Rain and the collection of short stories a Love and Longing in Bombay, which introduced the character of Inspector Sartaj Singh. Inspector Singh returns in Chandra's latest novel, Sacred Games, now out in paperback. Thank you for joining me, Vikram. Thank you. This is such a wonderfully immersive novel and so full of life. It, I want to start, though, talking about your background as a writer. Where did you grow up? You're here in America now. <laughs> where did you grow up? And how did you grow what did you grow up reading?
1: Well, uh I I was born and brought up in India and actually still still spend about half the year there. I teach at UC Berkeley and then when I'm not teaching I go back to Bombay uh, where my family lives, my parents and my sisters and so on. And so growing up in India in the 60s and 70s, um I read a very strange mixture of of um fiction and and mythology across cultures. Um, so the first stories that I heard would have been the great Indian epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which were told to me by my grandmother and my aunts and so forth. Um, and then I've read Hindi fiction, a lot of which actually was very pulpy detective and crime fiction. There's a huge body of that in the regional languages, not so much in English. And then very early, we were introduced to British fiction, you know, the Victorian writers especially. So an early encounter with Dickens, you know, and so forth. And, and then um, I think in my generation was when um, our fascination with the West shifted its focus from Britain to America. Uh, obviously, the U.S. was the new world power. We were all fascinated by American pop culture. We saw Elvis on the screen. And so then I started reading a lot of American um, fiction as well.
0: One of the things that's really interesting about just where the Indian literature is just the diversity of languages and, and the way the the interplay there. And, and as an American, I just am absolutely without clue right. <laughs> as to, to what's what. So could you explain to us? the different languages that you encountered as a child what what you spoke
1: what you grew up right. with well i um, my family is from the north from uttar pradesh um which is the big state that goes right across the north center of the uh, of the country and there the regional language local language is hindi so we spoke hindi at home and then um starting in kindergarten i started to learn the english alphabet and then you know there there was There's also transmission going both ways. So the Hindi that I spoke was sprinkled with English, and conversely, the English that we speak has bits of all kinds of other languages in it. And some families, you know, will speak three languages at the same time because, for instance, if you're Gujarati, you speak Gujarati at home, but you know Hindi because it's kind of the northern link language, and then you speak English as well. So it's a very multilingual environment. And especially in a city like Bombay, which is, um, you know, somewhere between around 20 million people now of immigrants uh, from all over the country. I can literally get out of from my house, from my apartment, walk down the street to the corner and hear five languages before I hit that corner. So the, the, the lingua franca of Bombay is a kind of Hindi, but It's sprinkled with words from all of these other languages. When we speak English, we use all of these other um, uh, slang, local slang, bits of Marathi, bits of Hindi. And so what my attempt in this book was to try and write it in the kind of English that I actually speak when I'm there. So if I were sitting in a bar in Bombay telling one of these stories to a friend of mine, I would assume knowledge on his or her part and just throw these in there. Uh, And that's the language in the book.
0: I, I'd like to ask about your first, your beginnings as a writer. What, what language did you write in? <laughs> right. And what sort of thing did you write?
1: Well, um, my mother is a writer. And so um, it's very strange for me. It's something that's always existed in my universe. Um, some of my earliest memories are of seeing her sitting at our kitchen table writing plays and short stories. At that point, we lived in Delhi, and she used to write for radio all India Radio, um, and later on when we moved to Bombay, she started writing film and had actually a very still continuing successful career as a screenwriter in, in the industry of film in Bombay. So like all kids, I used to make up stories in my head, and but for me, it was a natural thing to want to write those down. And I think my first, uh, sort of what I think of as my first complete stories came out in English because by the time that I got around, maybe when I was nine or 10, to thinking about actually writing these down, I had been going for a few years since kindergarten to an English language school. Um, and in that school, in the playground, when I was hanging out with my friends, who were from all over the country, the one language that we, we had in common was actually English. Right? So if you're from the South, you don't speak Hindi. And so we talked to each other in English, and so that became my language. Um, and I started writing science fiction. <laughs> I was a big uh, Asimov uh, fan at that point, and so I wrote uh, kind of science fictiony stories after Asimov and Bradbury, and so forth. Well, that's really interesting because it seems to me that
0: one of the aspects of *Sacred Games* is it's a, a it's really a novel that builds a world in for me at least as an American reader, in much the same way that Dune builds a world. And and actually Dune is maybe more familiar to me than the world that you create in sacred games.
1: Right. Um, You know, it's really interesting that you say that because the novels that I like reading best are ones into which I can sort of escape and that teach me the nuances and the processes of another world. And I guess that's what happened to me when I read the Victorian writers, for instance, who I still read quite incessantly, um, who, who have a strong forward narrative thrust and then start with really local, small incidents, you know, perhaps a love story a man and a woman who are engaged and the engagement breaks up. And so you start there, but then they open that out wider and wider until you're getting very many layers of a culture at a given point in time. And I think Particularly in this one, since I was thinking so much about detective fiction and crime fiction, when I was writing it. It occurred to me that the detective story has always been a perfect vehicle for exploring a culture, right? So the, the classical structure of the noir story: you find the dead body of an outsider, right? Somebody who's very low on the social scale, and then as the detective applies the scientific method and starts exploring he or she then finds connections that lead up, you know, towards the mayor, right? And so what you get is a a cross-sectional picture of how all these layers fit together and what kind of exchanges make this society work. And so that's what happened to me as I was writing it. I started exploring local crime, but then I found out that local crime was connected to local politics, you know. So then I thought, well, got to get the politics in there. And then soon I was thinking about politics, so then I was thinking about religion. And so what happens is you start then trying to construct on the page the complexity and and this kind of networked complexity of of the world that we live in.
0: This novel has a a really interesting... um, Set up. So maybe you could just explain to us, give us an idea of of where you put us at the beginning, at least it, your your little detective story that starts things off.
1: Right. <laughs> well, it starts off with this very cruel and unfortunate act of violence inflicted on an innocent, which is Fluffy the Pomeranian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 then the the cop who is investigating or or trying to look into the murder of Fluffy. Um, He's a beat cop, he's tired, he's, he's in his 40s, he's divorced, um, and he's uh, he thinks of himself as a kind of departmental time server. He knows he's not going anywhere high, um, who suddenly then gets an anonymous phone call tipping him off as to the whereabouts of one of the big, very famous, very powerful, fearsome gang bosses of Bombay, uh, a man who runs his own company, as they're called, um, organized crime um Gangs in Bombay are referred to as companies very self-consciously because they're very hierarchical and industrial in in their nature and in their self-concept. So there's a kind of disconnect between the life of Sartad Singh, this cop, and the the outsized life of Ganesh Gaitonde, the Don, who he then goes and uh, tries to capture, um, finds Gaitonde in this very strange bunker-like safe house, Uh, manages finally to get into the safe house, but finds that Gaitonde has killed himself. And from that point on, the narrative moves in two parallel movements, one being Sartad Singh, the policeman, investigating why Ganesh Gaitonde showed up in Bombay, why he was there, why he killed himself. And the other, strangely enough, is the story of Ganesh Gaitonde, uh, his rise from... um, being a commoner, an outsider in the underworld, to becoming one of its luminaries.
0: One of the things you mentioned it, it, is the network complexity of life in, in a big city. And, and you, you convey this really well through the use of these different voices. You have a, a third-person voice right. uh, for Sartage. And you, you have a first... Uh, But uh, Ganesh tells his story in the first person. And you also include these really fascinating uh, parts that you call insets.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, what happened was that, that, like I was saying, starting from local crime led me um, geographically across the country. So the crime that was happening on my street corner in Bombay actually turns out to be connected to something that is happening a thousand miles away on the northern borders. Um, the, the, what is called the great game, uh, the struggle for power in the subcontinent between the local powers and the great powers. And so what I got fascinated by was how, how what we experience as personal um, um, reality, our lives, are actually sometimes influenced by things that are very far away and that we have no knowledge of. And this also happens chronologically so that, for instance, if a bomb goes off in a Bombay train today, it's something that started 60-odd years ago in and, and partition and then even went further back. So my problem then became how to represent this complexity in a fictional form without it becoming completely formless. Um, and at at a point about halfway through the writing of the book, um, I saw a visual image that then really helped me, which is the mandala, uh, which I'm sure the listeners will know about. Um, it's a it's an iconic figure in in Buddhism and Hinduism, and the interesting thing about mandalas, which are often s- um, circular, is that there's often a central narrative, um, so that you'll have something about the birth of the Buddha, but then in these inset panels around that that central narrative will be these other stories which at first glance seem completely disconnected from the central narrative by reason of plot or or time. But what the artist does by placing them all together is suggest that all of these are part of the same whole, um, that the mandala, the universe, is all connected. All of these things have some relationship with each other. And so that's what I then started thinking of the book as is a kind of mandala which has um, central narratives, the story of Sartad Singh, the story of Ganesh Gai but also has these other insets which are absolutely essential to what's going on in their lives, but which aren't connected in any obvious or straightforward way.
0: Now, this book seems, it's very gritty. It's really realistic. And, and I am wanted to ask about what kind of research you did in terms of you know the the crimes you the kind of crimes you describe the kind the kind of police work did you talk to policemen did you investigate uh, right. in, into this
1: yeah i mean it, it, um, like other citizens of india um in who who were there and still are you know during the 80s and 90s continuing to now um there was no way you could escape the 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 feeling that um organized crime was was having an increasing influence over every aspect of our lives, you know, the political, the economic, and so forth. And it started to come very close to home. The level of violence in Bombay escalated as the economic stakes got larger and larger. So that um, in the early 90s, for the first time, an automatic weapon was first used on the streets of Bombay in a gangland head. Um, and then um, I actually was within earshot of one famous encounter between um, this very well-known hitman and a police team. Um, it just happened in my neighborhood one afternoon. I had no idea what was going on, but there was this gunfire. You know? um, and my family back home, uh, my mother works in the film industry. My, one of my sisters is a director, the other is a critic. And so I've lived on the peripheries of the film industry for the last few decades, and that industry has traditionally been the target of extortion by these guys. So the way it works is that one morning, if you're a producer, for instance, who has a film coming out, the assumption is that you have a lot of cash lying around. So you will get a call and somebody will say, so-and-so by boss wants you to deliver these many millions of rupees in a suitcase to us by next Thursday or else, right? And then what you're supposed to do is negotiate. And if you don't deliver, they will try and kill you. And so I knew f- friends and acquaintances who had been threatened, who had been shot at. Um, a couple of people who escaped very narrowly, uh, with one with a wound. And then my youngest sister, the film critic, is married to a guy who's a very well-known producer and director. And he got these calls. And he, being a kind of stubborn guy, upright guy, you know, basically told them where to get off which meant that the next day there were armed bodyguards around his house. And from then on, he couldn't for a couple of years, he couldn't go down the street without having this team of bodyguards following him. So I started then to think about this um, in a very immediate sense, as you might imagine. (laughs) You know, why is this happening? What is happening? And I started then to talk to policemen who I'd met when I was researching my last book. And a couple of them had become friends of mine, um, policemen and journalists. And then they started introducing me to other people slowly. And so over the years that I spent working on the book, I met a huge variety of people, you know, sociologists, people in hospitals, um, and some of the people from the other side of the line, the legal line. Um, And it became a very interesting journey uh, um, following these connections from one to the other. Um, And it was... Uh, interesting and fascinating how much people were willing to actually tell me. Uh, Once they had convinced themselves that I was kind of harmless, and, you know, I made a, um, told them straight up front that uh, I was a fiction writer, uh, I would never use any of this material in ways that could identify or harm somebody, Um, and then it was kind of astonishing sometimes what people were were willing to reveal. Well, what kind of uh,
0: people from the other side of the law did you talk to, and what Kind of things were they willing to tell you?
1: Well, um, the, it's the 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 very high level guys, the the top bosses, um, especially in the late '90s and the early part of the century, um, were nationally famous, are nationally famous, and so if you imagine Al Capone during his heyday, you know something like that. Wow. So so what happens is that they understand really well the power of spin. They they use the media, they have contacts in the media. Um, and they have a story to tell, they have a story to sell. So if they think you're from the media, if you're connected in any way, it's actually not that hard to at least get on the phone with some of these people because they want to, you know, tell their version of events in their way. Um, and one of them, at least, um, over the last... 10 years um, has become a legitimate politician. He sort of went from being um, a very strong local guy with huge power in his area to being somebody who actually sits in the legislative assembly at the state level. Um, He won an election. Uh, So he has a public sort of presence, so you can actually go and meet him. You know, you send your card up to him and he invites you up. The lower-level guys, the soldiers, were much harder to meet because they're the ones who are always frightened because they're always the casualties. So with them, it was more complicated. You know, you, you had to um, I had to make contact. I would be told to wait somewhere. Somebody would come pick me up, and, you know, and then we'd end up meeting and talking.
0: I wonder if you could maybe go into a little more detail about the types of crime because what you call extortion is kind of a protection racket here. Well, what other kinds of crime in Bombay did, did you experience, and how did they get translated in your book? And I'm wondering also, I guess, let's bring this back to, I guess, American crime fiction. How much American crime fiction did you read, and maybe how did that inform your experience of crime in India?
1: Well, I mean, like I was saying, I started reading American fiction at a very young age. And so I read, you know, the great detective writers, you know, Chandler and Hammett and, and so forth. And then, I, off the contemporary people, I, I love Pelicanos and and um, uh, other people like that. I've actually, after I finished the book, started watching The Wire, which I think is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and again, it has that same kind of fascination with, process and connection right so how does a guy on a street corner how does he get linked up to city hall right (laughs) which is what which is what i'm fascinated by um well as as in terms of crime um, the the where they started from i think in the 60s and 70s uh, a lot of them began gathering money and power from smuggling Uh, we were a very closed economy at the time And so they would basically smuggle anything that made them money. So I heard about um, in the 80s, actually early 90s, um, shipments of B-complex vitamins coming in at a time when people were getting sick in Bombay. (laughs) You know, people had colds and fever. So this is demand for B-complex. So they said, well, we'll bring it in, you know. Um, In the 90s, when the economy started opening up, there was a huge demand for computer parts, right, which the government used to... Um, impose a duty on, right? So what do these guys do? They bring them in, (laughs) so you get cheaper, you know, video cards uh, on the gray market from these guys than you would get on the legal market. Um, And gold at one time was a huge um, um, item that was smuggled in. Uh, India has this sort of inexhaustible appetite for gold and silver. Um, But then also they started moving beyond that to more sophisticated things like getting heavily involved in real estate, and especially in Bombay because the it's a city that's built on an island, so every foot of square um every square foot of space gets uh fought over and it becomes really valuable. Um and then the media, um, in, in they're involved in film production, uh, and film production and um television is a great way to launder money, right? Because it's a heavily cash based business and you know if If you have a hundred extras, you can always put down three hundred extras right so that um you show receipts from a hundred three hundred people, and that way your cash gets laundered um drugs um there's a there's a um India is one of the conduits through which um Afghan heroin makes its way to Europe and to the west um uh it comes over the border from Pakistan and then gets transported in containers and so forth uh, to the West. Uh, pretty much anything that will, that will make them a profit. The only thing that I've heard people sort of um, make a great statement about saying we don't do that is prostitution because that, uh, it offends the kind of macho sensibilities of the great gangsters, right? And so there's a special sort of subset of people who do that, but they make a great show of saying we don't live off women quote-unquote
0: in, in addition to all the kind of uh, crime-based violence and corruption based violence there's also a, a, a fair amount of, of religious violence isn't there
1: right um, well I, I think it the the link that that exists between um, organized crime and politics is one that is is essential I mean you uh, organized crime cannot exist without some sort of um, compromise, shall we say, or some sort of settlement with local politics and the larger politics behind that. Uh, where there is political will, you can fight organized crime, but both sides profit from this connection, I think. Um, and so what happens is that that these guys provide muscle. To the politicians, they provide logistics. Those guys let them exist. And then if you're talking about politics in today's India or anywhere else in the world, you're talking about the uses of religion. And so invariably what happens is that the 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 local struggles of the local hood get linked up with the larger um, national struggles um, or, or statewide struggles uh, of the subcontinent, which then becomes also a religious struggle since partition. And there's a very direct link. Um, I, I know that sounds really abstract, but the very direct and obvious link is that some of these guys are used by the local intelligence agencies as extra constitutional arms, um, as deniable assets, let, let's say. So, so and it's, a, again, a mutually profitable situation because these guys sometimes provide the best intelligence. You can send them off on missions and then deny that you sent them and then these guys get logistics and money and intelligence themselves from, from the state. Um, so it all ends up being this, very, this sort of um, network, as, as the word that I've used before, of varying agendas that are at the same time sometimes struggling with each other while they're actually supporting each other in another context.
0: So here you are as a writer trying to recreate this world in prose. I I wanted to ask, when you're when you set off to to undertake this, was this as big and and sprawling
1: as it is now? No, no, no. I really I really did think I was writing a book about local crime. You know about about uh, like I was saying the crown the crime on my street corner, right and. There was a moment at which um, I was talking to somebody, a friend of mine in Bombay, who's a fairly senior police um, official, and I was asking him about that incident um, in my neighborhood when the, the police cornered this this little team of gangsters and, and there was a gunfight. And so he was telling me about that and saying, look, you know, I can tell you about how we got the intelligence, about how the operation was planned and mounted, but if you really want to understand... How that happened, you have to go to Delhi and talk to these two guys, and then go further north and talk to these two people. And what he was trying to get across to me was that what was happening on a purely local scale was actually connected in terms of money and power and exchanges of favors to things that were happening elsewhere. And that's when I first started to understand that, I guess in a sense to use a kind of... um, glib phrase, perhaps, that no crime is local, right, that, that it has further implications. So then I started to geographically follow these connections. I, you know, one guy would tell me, go and talk to this person, and I would go and talk to that person. And then who would in passing mention, you know, another person who was sitting up in Kashmir? And I'd say, well, would you do me a favor and call him and tell him maybe I'd like, he'd talk to me? And so there was no plan at this point. I was just trying to sort this out for myself. And then once I started to get a feeling for the whole thing, that's when it started to occur to me that what I was thinking of as a 250-page novel with a tidy solution to the mystery at the end had turned into some other animal altogether. Um, And then I just sort of, at some point, you have this feeling of giving in to the shape of the book itself. You can't control it um, in in a kind of um, hyper, you know, sort of hyper-controlled way anymore. You have to see where it wants to go, and then. Recognize the organic shape that the book wants to take up,
0: and so uh, I guess this kind of answers my question about how, how did you plan this? I mean, once once you decide realized it was going to be this big, did you have some kind of idea, in like a, a master plan, or did you just write, uh, you know, x words per day and f- follow them where they went? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, no, I actually uh, there was a point at which I was about. I think about 350 pages, manuscript pages in, when the the bulb went on over my head and I actually caught it, I suppose. Um, I I started to understand the architecture of it and where it was beginning and where it was going to end and, and the insets, you know, the whole, the idea of the mandala. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I, I had to go back to page one and start writing again, <laughs> which was very disheartening <laughs> at that point. But um, so then I started again and then I had this plan um, but the first draft i have to say uh, was full of a lot of holes and gaps in some places and then extra things in other parts and so when i finished the first draft um i couldn't even show it to my then girlfriend my now wife because it wouldn't have made any sense to her so i then had to go back and on the second draft i then had a, a much better idea of how to reshape it so that it actually all all the things fell together um and i the I left the gaps in there because I didn't want to get uh, go back and rework as I was writing because I was convinced that I was going to end up in this loop <laughs> forever. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I guess I think when I'm writing fiction, I think fairly architecturally. I, I s- sort of sense a shape that's going to come out of it. And I notice this also actually when I'm teaching fiction, um, when even when I'm teaching a literature class, Uh, I tend to do a lot of standing by the board and drawing the shape of the story, right? What happens at what point in time along the narrative line. Um, And so once I get that, then I have a feeling of comfort. I know what I'm doing.
0: This book took you seven years to write? Eight,
1: eight eight-ish. Eight, yeah.
0: Boy, now (laughs) I have to ask you, I mean, the world changes a lot in eight years. In, In those eight years, I think what if, uh, yeah, um, I mean, we had a major terrorist event in right, the United right, States. Right. Could you talk about the challenges of writing a book over such an extended period of time?
1: Right. Well, um, you know, you're absolutely right. You're, when you're writing something that's contemporary, there's always this, this um, fear that you have that you're going to get overtaken by events. Um, and, and, particularly when you're structuring the story around a kind of threat you know, that hasn't been realized yet, but uh, it's disheartening to say this, but might well be at some point in our future, um, it becomes a kind of scary exercise to just stick to it. And finally, again, you, know, you just have to give up and do it. Um, and what was funny was that, that um, one of the people that the book is dedicated to, Hussain Zaidi, is a very close friend of mine who's a crime journalist in Bombay, who helped me a lot with the book. He has a journalist sensibility, right? So you have to get the scoop and get it on your front page by tomorrow or somebody else is going to scoop you. And he was so baffled by me. He would tell me, you know, hey, that other guy published, you know, his crime book about Bombay, you know, last month. Don't you feel bad? What are you going to do? Why don't you hurry up and finish yours so you can get it out? And a hard time, I mean, I understood where he was coming from, but I think when you're writing fiction, you're actually doing something quite different you aren't quite even though we call them novellas you know from the italian word that suggests novelty um, the news what you're actually trying to deal with is again process and character much more than you're trying to say this happened yesterday although we pretend to do that Um, and so I, i think finally that's what as a fiction writer is both your burden and your your saving grace is that you're not linked. I I, I don't feel like I have to get it together and finished and published by, like, next month.
0: One thing that that I thought was was interesting, could you talk about the choices you made for some of your characters? For example, Sartaj Singh, he's a Sikh. Could you, I mean, just in making that choice, that's a choice that you can make when you're, said your story in India that you really can't make in America.
1: Right. right. Well, you could, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't I'm, There must be a Sikh policeman somewhere <laughs> in the great northern United States, but I don't know. I haven't met him yet. Uh, well, what actually happened was Sartaj, um, uh, like you said earlier uh, in the conversation, was actually a character in my last book. He was in one of the short stories in that book. And I have to say, I don't know where he came from. Um, it sometimes happens this way that a character appears to you already almost fully formed. And when I first thought of him, he was already a Sikh. And I can make all kinds of post-game guesses you know, about why that was. I had some very, very close friends growing up um, uh, who were Sikh. And I actually learned Gurmukhi, the the uh, script in which the Sikhs scriptures are written in, uh, when I was a kid, although I've lost all of it um my ability to speak and read Punjabi from not using it enough. Um, so somewhere from that mixture, this guy appeared. And then once I started actually working with him, it then became apparent to me that it was very useful to have him be a Sikh because in the Bombay police department, which is dominated by Maharashtrians and Marathas, he's an outsider. He exists on the periphery. He's he, he can't help but being a little bit outside of all the local politics between within that department. And he, he's conspicuous in the city because of his ethnicity and his religion. So that became really interesting to work with.
0: In this book, we there's a lot of influences of, of film. Mm,
1: right.
0: and, and, and could you talk about how you, you grew up with filmmakers, and, right. and could you talk about how film influenced both you personally and also how it influences... Uh, Indians' perceptions of themselves.
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, again, this is a kind of truism to to say this, but cinema is hugely important in the contemporary culture of India. And, um, you know, we've been making films for a long time. Um, The Lumiere brothers, after they first demonstrated um, the technology in Paris, actually, I think six or seven months later, did a show in Bombay. And then Indians started, this was in the 1890-somethings, and, um, and Indians started making films shortly after that. So we been making movies for 100 years almost, or longer than 100 years in, in India. And then especially post-independence, it became the one national conversation that we could all have. Um, because we are talking about a country with a huge diversity of languages, and um, especially back then, uh, a very large proportion of illiteracy. So that cinema was the one medium that we could all engage with and all talk about, um, regardless of place or caste or class. Um, and we have this very um, lively and engaged and sensuous encounter with the cinema itself. I mean, if you walk down a street in any city in India, you'll hear f- songs from the films you know on the radios playing in the shops you ask any kid about Amitabh Bachchan, you know, who's our big star, and they'll be able to tell you the story of his life. It's it's something that's knit into the very texture of everyday life in, in India. And then I got, I mean, I don't think you could write a story about contemporary Bombay without having film sort of sprinkled in there somewhere. And then in reference to the world that this book is about, like I was saying, there's a very intimate and and strangely direct link between the underworld and cinema, right? The the underworld money comes into film. And we've had the strange phenomenon of um, gangsters making movies about gangsters. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so it becomes very postmodernly self-referential in a very kind of direct way. And then you have, you know, some kids sitting in a small town somewhere watching these movies and absorbing ideas about style and attitude. And then, Perhaps being drawn to the idea of the big city, where you can go and become a big boss. Um, so I try to to deal with that kind of mythological role, or um, uh, a kind of uh, a kind of the, the texture of the way that film invades our lives and becomes a part of it. And and I should say also that. Um, Every one of the policemen and the underworld guys that I ever talked to had very sharp opinions about cinema. That one was good. It, it, it was accurate. It, it portrayed us or them correctly. That other one was, you know, absolute nonsense. Don't do that. <laughs> There's a, a concept in, in this book, and I think at,
0: at large in uh, Indian society, uh, filmy. That the... Right, right. right. <laughs> Could you say wh- it, just tell us what that is?
1: Well, you know, um, as anybody who's seen Indian film will have noticed, and especially somebody who's trained to watch Western cinema, it's it's in many cases it's larger than life. It's almost operatic, right? The 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 of course the songs are in there, but also the emotions are played up at a very high level. There's the these um, you know the love is large, the confrontations are large, the hatreds are large. So, the the way that Indians use this word filmy is to, to is to describe something that seems almost too large for normal life, right? So if if um, somebody is getting very angry at you, for example, you could tell him, "Hey, don't be so filmy about it." You know, I just ate your your yogurt from the fridge, right? <laughs> so uh, so there's this notion that 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 filmy is is something that is cinematic and operatic in its splendor and in its size. Um the contradiction though is that I think in in some sense, uh the way that we encounter life and that we see life in in our normal day-to-day um experience is actually very filmy. I mean we are and I, I hate to make this kind of generalization about a billion people, but we're emotional, right? And we we um If I think about my family, the feuds that take place between, you know, this aunt and that aunt that carry on for 20 years, those are very deeply felt and very deeply, very loudly expressed. So uh, it's it's a way of, uh, you know, filminess is something that we both, I think, therefore resist but also take part in.
0: I I wanted to ask you uh, about... You wrote this in both India and America. Went going back yes. and forth. Right. Now you have an audience in India, presumably, and you have an audience in America, and they're going to have really, really, mm-hmm. I mean, mind-bogglingly different reactions to it. For me, at least, as an American, I read this and I think, well, this is kind of like a a a, a, a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel. It's the it, the culture right. is really odd, and and, and it's you laced it with uh, with all these uh, words, and you give us a glossary, which is, I mean, <laughs> right. this is a right out of science fiction. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, yet your Indian audience, uh, this right. is kind of like L.A. would be to me, I guess, right. or or uh, right. New York. Um, could you talk about how you, as a writer, kind of balanced those two perceptions? Did you
1: think about that, or how? Well, I have a very specific audience in mind when I'm writing. My My primary audience that I imagine when I'm writing um is a small group of people my mother my sisters a couple of friends and my wife who's american but has been in india um a lot and so um <clears throat> that really helps me to focus uh my my techniques as a writer um i can't even you know if somebody said why are you writing for an indian audience the question that often occurs to me is how do you write for an indian audience of a billion people and varying <laughs> cultures you know i don't know what that is and and who knows what a global audience is? So um, and, and in my earlier two books, um, the idea of telling a story to specific people is very important. Both of them use um, the frame structure, where this book starts with somebody saying, I'm going to tell you a story to another person, and then we as readers listen to that story being told. So there is a storyteller and a person receiving that story. So in my head, at least, the people who are receiving this story are... Um, are those people that I talked about. And therefore then the use of language and the assumption of knowledge on their part, right? So if I mention a film that is very famous in India, I don't explain it because they would know what that is. That's who I'm speaking to. Um, The question of um, reality and representation though is one that fascinates me particularly, and particularly in this book because Like you were saying, the idea of the cinematic gangster is something that gets played with a lot in the text. Ganesh Gaitande actually ends up making a movie for his girlfriend. Yeah, there's a great scene on the boat. Right, right. Where he's working with scriptwriters, you know, and and, uh, the story within the story actually has some sort of mirroring effect with his own life. So it's his fantasy of what his own life is. But also what I was really fascinated by was how our own lives, the realities of our own lives can seem unreal to us. So that when we talk about terrorism, when we talk about um, nuclear threats, they often seem unreal. So that Sartaj Singh, the cop in the book, once he starts understanding that there is a threat to his city, keeps on thinking about how unreal it seems. Because um, all of those things happen only in spy novels (laughs) and, and in films, right? They're too filmy to be actually true. And so the, the the idea of negotiating these horrors, with we, which we only encounter and prefer to encounter in fictional form, and what happens when those actually step up close to us, is something that's an essential sort of thematic interest running through the book, um, even extending to the way that Ganesh Gaitonde perceives himself. Right, so he's always talking about himself in a distance kind of way, you know. I am Ganesh Gaitonde, the great Ganesh Gaitonde. So the way the reader might see him and the way that he per- perceives himself in a kind of filmy way is something that, again, I had a lot of fun with working through the book. Um, he's he's a very, very unreliable narrator, to say the least.
0: <laughs> Early on in the uh, writing of this book, you published... Uh, something, uh, uh, an essay called The Cult of Authenticity. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what that essay is about
1: well, um, like, and how yeah. it played into this? Right, right. Well, you know, the, the writing in English in some ways still continues to be a political act in India, whether you want it or not. So by the time that I was growing up, you know, when I was in kindergarten in the playground as I was talking about, I was speaking English to my friends and I knew that the language came with colonial baggage. I knew where it came from, but it also felt like just another language in this big variety of Indian languages that were scattered around me. And so when I started writing very early, I started using English. Now the question that was asked, especially in the 50s and 60s, Um, in Indian literary criticism was, can you represent Indian reality in English? Is it possible? Should you? Um, So what happens is then that there's, there's a kind of effort to propagate the idea that writing in English is less truly Indian than writing in another Indian language, which seems to me a kind of Nativism, which is really misdirected because the notion of an authentic Indianness is inauthentic <laughs> in, in 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 the way that I think uh, there's always been an influence from outside, and the way that Indian culture has survived for so long is by absorbing these outside influences and in a way um making them our own thing, right so that um the English that I speak and that I use is. Varied and textured from my experience of my own nature and my own life, so I guess what i 'm arguing is that that writing in English is no more authentic or inauthentic than writing in any other language um, it 's the life that I live it 's the language one of the languages that I live in inside my head, um, and so the cult of authenticity was a, a kind of reaction. Or a polemic, let's let's say, uh, against that kind of nativ- nativist urge um, in in Indian cultural thinking. Um, I should I should say also that that one of the 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 people that I use that I refer to a lot in that essay is Borges, and what interested me really about reading about Borges in that context was that the same argument went on in Argentina, and um, in terms of uh, Borges was accused of being too westernized and using western tropes and symbology and and texts in his writing and since writing this essay i found out wherever i travel in the word world the same conversation goes on um transmuted into into um, a polemic between different centers of power right so um i had when i taught at Breadloaf um three or four years ago and i had a young black poet a woman who walked up to me and talked to me about this essay and talked about how there was the same kind of um, argument, continuing argument about authenticity in the black community, right? Um, What does it mean to be an authentically black writer? Do you, if you start writing in a certain way, are you selling out, right? Are you writing for the market? Um, And I suppose whenever there's a perceived or felt inequality of resources and power, this kind of argument in terms of art becomes really, um, it becomes really important to people. Um, but I think also that kind of identity politics can then back you up into a corner. Because it seems to me if I'm always worried about what the West wants, right, what my lang- the, the English language wants, whether I'm selling out or not, to protect myself from that, I'm always self-conscious. And therefore, again, writing backed into a corner against that right i'm trying to be authentically indian all the time and therefore making myself inauthentic (laughs) (laughs) now
0: i understand that you're a tech guy yes yes yeah and that actually the the software design informs your fiction
1: yeah yeah i mean i i wouldn't push it too far but i I am a terrible geek (laughs) i i uh, used to program professionally and work as a consultant. I don't do that anymore, but I still do it for fun. Um, and I, I think the, 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 the analogy I would make is that there's a sort of pleasure of making that feels to me very similar in both circumstances. That is, when I'm putting together a software program, um, I'm making these little units, these little objects that interact with each other, and then finally have a function and a coherence as a larger unit and then you want it not only to be functional but also to be beautiful and there's a kind of joy that comes from putting it together that feels very similar to what happens when you're writing fiction you're 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 trying to tell a story at the most basic functional level but you're also looking for these larger architectural coherence and finally for a kind of elegance right um for beauty uh and so uh I think the, the 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 architectural understanding of both things. Um, I think my fascination with with knowledge and information, and that, um, in the computer science sense of the word, uh, of the phrase, um, informs my fiction, and the other way around as well. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that that makes this novel such a pleasure to read is, is the the prose is really beautiful and, and just finely detailed and honed and, and that's a, that's a there's a lot of it. <laughs> so, um, could you talk a little bit about the process of, of rewriting? I mean, it, it, from what you said, you put together a first draft that that <clears throat> was like the structure of the house, right, right? With a few of the rooms sketched in. Um, how, how did you? realize the the finished prose?
1: Well, I write really slowly, actually. Um, and I think that's why I also, I, I, you know, it's not that I did so much research that it took, that's why it took so long to write this book. I do about, on a good day, 400 words. And that's my target. Um, and I think what that does is gives me enough time to think about sentence structure and, and you know, the very sort of sound of the word and the rhythm of, of Um, the language as it runs down the page. Um, So usually at the end of a good working day, I end up with 400 words that aren't, you know, I'm not suggesting that they're brilliant, but they more or less work in some sense. And so then when I'm working on them again in a second and third draft, I don't have to change the language that much except if there's something dissonant or something's not working right, I start to hear it and then I can start to rework it. one of my favorite writers is Anthony Krollup, um, uh the 19th century British writer, and he said, I'm quoting almost exactly, I think he said, um, three hours produces as much as a man ought to write in a day. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think if you do, I mean, I, I write more than three hours a day. I work from probably just after breakfast, you know, 8.30 in the morning till 1, and I do 400 words. So I think just slowing yourself down enough to listen to what you're doing, and then again the next day to be able to look over those that little section of 400 words gives you um, um, a lot of time to to work on the shape of the prose. And then, um, as I was saying, the drafting and redrafting, um, the more you work on it, the more you start hearing the things that are off. Um, And that actually runs down all the way to publication. I mean, I'm still... Um, resisting the urge to change sentences. <laughs> There's certain things that when I'm reading aloud in readings, I think oh, that could be you know I could I could have cut that word there. So that kind of thing is actually endless. At some point, you just have to abandon it.
0: Since you come from a, a family with a history in film, I, I'm wondering if you've considered writing screenplays of your own work. I mean, I, I think the screenplay of this would. I mean. This is a mini series <laughs> <Yes, yes, yes. laughs> not, not not else
1: well no, I mean uh I have worked in the film industry mm-hmm. in in bombay I've worked on a film that my brother in law actually ended up producing and directing, but i think uh, I, no i'm I'm very insistent about not working on my own novels um I, that way lies madness i think <laughs> <laughs> um i've i've uh, I guess because I imagine this first as, as a book, in my mind it exists as a book, and to do a successful adaptation, I think you would have to do very radical things to it. And I think that, for me, would be impossible to do, uh, or perhaps even to imagine the kinds of um, perversions that you have, would have to, of, of correctly thought out perversions that you would have to inflict on the text to make it work as a film. Um, I think would end up driving me insane. So I, I really don't want to do it. Um, there's somebody who is interested in this, and and so I just told them, um, look, you can have the book, and I'll see you in three or four years at the premiere. I don't want to have anything to do with it.
0: The reading experience is very, very different from the film-going experience because in in a sense, the, the, the reader is, is the director of the film, right. that, and we just read your screenplay and have it unfold in our minds.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I th- it was very educational for me to work on that one film that I did uh, because you realize then how it's a, it's a medium that has nothing to do with text, that, that it, the language of cinema is depth of field and sound and composition, and that what you're doing when you construct a screenplay is not making, an art, not making art, you're making the blueprint for the art. And correctly as the writer, you should have little control over what actually finally goes up on the screen. Um, so I, I, uh, it demonstrated to me also um, how different a skill it is to write screenplay. I mean, when I first started working, I would write these enormous sort of chunks of dialogue not realizing that a minute in screen time is an eternity, <laughs> and, and the director would just like you know scrawl through them with a red pencil. And I would be very offended, but I finally got it that you can't do that in 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 a visual medium. Um, that it has to be another shape and another structure. Um, so, I th- I think this is why fiction writers get so tortured when they go to Hollywood. You know, it's not just what they prefer to talk about which is the corruption, and we only make this for money and so forth, You know, which is all true to a certain extent. But I think also um, it's a very, very different skill set and a very kind of... Um, I realize hanging out with directors that they think in terms that the way they see the world is very different, um, as different as a painter, right? Um, a painter looks at a room and sees blocks of light and and um, chunks of... of Um, shadows, right? And light. And what I might see is the shoes on somebody's feet and notice that they're Nike, you know, or something like that. So it's a different sensibility altogether.
0: Having just spent eight years writing a novel, are are you leaping right back into the, (laughs) the, the, the same horse?
1: No, I actually decided to give myself a bit of a break. Um, I realized when I finished the book that I'd been writing pretty much without a break for 20 years, you know, uh, and I mean that quite literally, because once I start working, I, I try and work, not seven days a week, but at least six if I can if I can do it. So I. Uh, As an experiment, I decided to give myself a holiday and just not think about writing so that I would have the time to watch all the bad movies that I wanted (laughs) to and and all the books that I've been piling up, buying and piling up on my bookshelves for years and not reading. Um, So I've spent the last year, about a year, doing that, and it's been a lot of fun and a great pleasure. I have sort of vague ideas floating around, and so maybe, I don't know, sometime soon I'll be ready to get back into it, but not quite yet.
0: We've been speaking with Vikram Chandra. His new novel is Sacred Games. Thank you for joining me, Vikram. Thank you.
1: It was a great pleasure.